From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Primary care doctors, the ones you usually see when you're sick, are increasingly in short supply. And the shortage comes at a time when saving health care dollars has never been more important. And in any given day, I could deliver a baby in the morning, see a bunch of patients in the day, maybe look at a microscope, go to the hospital and maybe comfort a family, and then I could go home under a canopy of stars. And that's family medicine. (laughs) The shortage of primary care doctors and what medical schools are doing to ease the problem. And the doctor house call has been a thing of the past until recently. Now, some physicians are finding it more efficient to treat some patients in their home. Also on the program, binge eating disorders. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Primary care doctors, usually specialists in family medicine, are at the front lines of providing health care in this country. It's usually your primary care doctor you see first when you're not feeling so hot, and it's that doctor who decides whether or not you need more specialized care. There is a growing concern that there won't be enough primary care doctors in the coming years. For example, the Association of American Medical Colleges says there will be a shortage of around 130,000 physicians in the next 10 to 20 years, many of those in primary care. And heightening the concern is the fact that 10,000 baby boomers are becoming eligible for Medicare every day. Now, on the other hand, the Institute of Medicine, which keeps track of medical education in the U.S., says it doesn't see a big problem. We're training enough primary care physicians. Here to discuss the future of primary care medicine and whether there's a looming shortage of doctors is Dr. John Bachman. Dr. Bachman is a specialist in family medicine at Mayo Clinic and is a professor of family medicine in the Mayo Medical School. Welcome to the program, Dr. Bachman. Well, thanks. I can hardly wait. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to have you here. We've all heard that there may not be enough primary care physicians, particularly since the population is aging. Is this a serious problem? This is going to be a real big problem. And let's begin at the basics. The basics are one in six. One in six of your dollars goes to paying your health care bill. Now, you may not have that in your insurance, but the largest provider of health care is the U.S. government for Medicaid, Medicare, the VA. We are spending $7,500 a person for health care. That is an extraordinary amount, and we can't afford it. Health care does not deserve that money. Any money that's wasted is money that we're not using for schools, not using for parks, not helping us improve our life. So as we go forward, one of the big issues is not only going to be taking care of our population, but doing it in an effective manner that's involving costs. There's only one specialty that is able to reduce morbidity, mortality, and costs, and that's family medicine. Now, why is that? Because you are on the front lines. <laughs> that's true, and we don't understand that. So let's talk about that for a bit. When we look at people who get sick, if you take a look at adults, how many adults get sick in, or injured in a month? In the well, U.S.? Yeah, for every 1,000 patients or 1,000 people, how many get sick or injured? Well, the answer is 750. Now, out of those 750, how many actually go to a primary care physician? About 250. And then how many actually then go see a specialist? Well, maybe about 50. And how many come to a large institution like Mayo Clinic? One. (laughs) Now, Barbara Yawn here in Rochester actually did a study that's a little bit more refined than the figures I gave you. But the fact of the matter is the majority of people 
who I'm seeing in my office are different than those that we see here at the Mayo Clinic. What I'm dealing with when I see my patients isn't possibilities, it's probabilities. If you see me, the odds are 90% in three weeks you're going to be better. If you don't see me, well, maybe it's 75%. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but anyway, what I'm there for is to take care of those issues that are common. Now, there's also something else that's going on here. What's the difference between the 750 people that are sick and injured and the 250 that show up in my office? Well, it turns out that the number one factor is their life. They have dis-ease. When I, I just came back from Nicaragua, I, I go down there with the students entering Mayo Medical School. Typically, we see about 800 patients. Uh, this year, we saw 1,300. Well, what was going on? Well, they were having a drought. Everybody was stressed. People were tense, and people were coming in with the problems with anxiety, backaches, stomach aches, all related to stress. If you were to come to see me, Tom, and you had a sore throat, sure, you might say you have a strep throat, but I probably would say, well, wait a minute, strep is everywhere. But, Tom, how many hours a week are you working? Maybe we need to chat a little bit about that. And so what we do is we try to take care of a, a person as a whole person to be able to help them so that they have a healthy lifestyle. My goal is to keep you away from specialists by not doing a lot of tests. I think when you mentioned the figures before about how we needed more specialists or that the uh, certain organizations don't, we still have to look at the data and shows that if we add specialists to our population, we increase our morbidity, increase our costs, and increase mortality. If you have a town that doesn't have a cardiologist and you send the cardiologist there, there will be an outbreak of cardiology diseases. <laughs> it's sad but true. And sure, some of those people may very well need it, but boy, a lot of other people don't. So what you're saying is is that one of the keys to reducing the cost of medical care in this country is primary care physicians. It is absolutely essential. And if you correlate costs of care and primary care, primary care is one of the best ways of reducing costs in a population. If you take a look at Minnesota, Minnesota is unusual because we have a strong public health department, we have a strong primary care base, and we also then have a bunch of specialists, but they're in large groups, oftentimes on salaries. That's a cost-effective model. That works. You go to other states, and you'll see it's not cost-effective. It's because they don't have that primary care base. So how do we get more of you? Well, there are a few things that are going on that would help. Uh, the first thing is the uh, Affordable Care Act has some measures in there to help uh, us produce more primary care physicians. It has to do with forgiving loans and, and encouraging people to be financially able to afford to go to primary care. In Canada, one of the things is the disparity between salaries between primary care and specialists is a lot smaller. That's going to change as, again, the Affordable Care Act, if it starts asking for a value, is going to change things. I, as a primary care doctor, if I'm working in a full-time position, I have control of $10 million worth of health care costs. $10 million. All right, as a primary care provider, I only get 5% of that. But suppose we can incentivize our primary care physicians, pay them a little bit more, ask them to do things like house calls, pay them for those kind of things, pay them for thinking rather than procedures. And all of a sudden you have doctors going to houses and preventing them from going into the hospital and running up a big bill. Has this been a satisfying career for you? And what do you tell a medical student who might be interested in the field? I think if you want to see more life in a week, follow me around. It's a wonderful job. I've delivered 1,200 babies. I have taken care of the children of my children. I've been very happy with my career. The lifestyle that we have is outstanding, and I think the, one of the prouder moments of my life is my daughter, Maria, is at Boston University, and she finally said, 
I'm going into family medicine. And so she's a second-year family medicine resident. So there is hope for you, Tom. When you get sick, there will be another Bachman around to take care of you. I want to know, you when you work with the students at Mayo Medical School, are some of those students, like your daughter, being responsive to that call that you're putting out? Definitely. One of the things that we did was uh, before the students come to Mayo, we've sent out a, uh, a program where they can come with me to Nicaragua and they see primary care and they were able to immerse themselves in taking care of people as a holistic way. We said, well, we won't take care of your headaches, we'll take care of your anger. They talked about alcoholism. Uh, they learned what it was like. Then as soon as they enter the school, we have programs set up so that they can actually be encouraged to go into family medicine, family practice interest groups, the ability in their third and fourth year to connect with uh, doctors in family medicine. And I think one of my favorite programs is get them out of the large institution. Why should they see the one in a thousand? What they need to do is go out on rural communities like I did. I went out to two harbors. And in two harbors, there is where I discovered what it was all about. I took care of people for over a year, didn't have any tests, and I learned a tremendous amount. The most important was this, that in any given day, I could deliver a baby in the morning, see a bunch of patients in the day, maybe look at a microscope, go to the hospital and maybe comfort a family who someone has died, and then I could go home under a canopy of stars. I could go from birth to death the microscopic to the universe, all in one day. And that's family medicine. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and you are a shining example of what it means to be a family physician. Dr. John Bachman, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Tom. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, we'll find out what medical schools are doing to meet this doctor's shortage. And about how the training of doctors is changing to meet the demands of the digital age. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, we've just heard about some of the problems facing primary care doctors, including a possible growing shortage. And that raises the question about what medical schools are doing to meet that shortfall in the decades ahead. Here to talk about that and what's changed in how medicine is taught these days, Dr. Michelle Halliard and Dr. Darcy Reed. Dr. Halliard is the interim dean of Mayo Medical School, and Dr. Reed is the senior associate dean for academic affairs at Mayo Medical School. Welcome to the program, both of you. It's nice to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. It must be an exciting job that you have, uh, training tomorrow's physicians. Oh, it truly is, and Mayo really has taken up the mantle of training the physician leaders for the future. We know that there's so many changes in health care, so many challenges in health care, And Mayo is committed to creating the physician of the future who can not only heal the patients that we see and advance the science, but also heal the healthcare system. And you, Dr. Reed, are the Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs. So how have things changed uh, since you went to medical school, particularly, I suppose, since I went to medical school? I know it's totally different. Yeah, so there are a number of changes uh, happening. Two major initiatives in Mayo Medical School. One, as as, uh, Dean Halyard mentioned, we are uh, aiming to teach students not only to uh, heal patients, but also heal the healthcare system. And so we are uh, implementing a curriculum in the science of healthcare delivery, which teaches students new competencies related to high-value care, population health, person-centered care, health policy, health economics, and technology. You said heal the healthcare system. That suggests it's sick. Yes, yes. Well, I think there's there's an abundance of evidence to suggest that there's a lot of room for improvement in the healthcare system, and, and the students certainly understand that issue and the 
magnitude of the problem. And what we're aiming to do is really equip them with the tools that they will need to address the challenges in the healthcare system as they move forward into residency and into practice. It's interesting, isn't it, how despite the fact that there's a great deal of uncertainty about the future of healthcare in this country, that getting into medical school remains very competitive, doesn't it? It is competitive, but I think that just that speaks to this generation of learners who really want to make a difference in healthcare, and we want to help them make that difference. Medical education really hasn't changed in the last hundred years, but yet the complexities of what physicians have to deal with have changed. So there's an even quality of care. People are not accessing the healthcare system in the right places at the right time. The quality indicators show that we have room for improvement, even in this country where we have excellent medical care. So we're committed to improving the way medical education is delivered through giving our students curriculum to help prepare them for those challenges. Just a moment ago, Dr. Bachman talked about the shortage of family medicine and how it has meant so much to him in his career, and he appreciates that he gets to dabble a little bit in all sorts of different fields of medicine. Is that something that the medical school of today is considering, is that maybe specialties are taking away some of the the shining stars of family medicine? Well, certainly students have to go where their calling is, and so at our medical school, our goal is to give our students a wide breadth of experiences so that no matter where they feel compelled to pursue their career, they're able to make a contribution. So in Mayo Medical School, about a third of our students go into primary care, and certainly that's an important piece. We've got two-thirds that are going into specialty care, and just as Mayo really integrates all of the specialties, whether it's primary care through specialty care, our medical school prepares those students to go into those residencies and ultimately into those careers. What percentage of your students are women now? About half. About half. Has that changed the popularity of certain specialties? I mean, do women tend to go into family practice more than men used to? And and the second part of that question is, do women often look for a specialty where they might be able to work part-time? Those are great questions. I think if you look at nationally, yes, it's true that um, women have uh, chosen non-surgical fields traditionally, but we are seeing this change, including uh, in the Mayo Medical School student body. Uh, there are a growing number of women choosing uh, procedural specialties and surgical specialties, which is a terrific change. For example, in our uh, Mayo Medical School, we have uh, two female leaders of our surgery interest group. How do you go about helping uh, a medical student choose a career, we have a, a wonder- specialty? We have a wonderful program called our Thrive Program that was started by our senior associate dean for student affairs. And part of that is career exploration. So our students are actually taught in as they're going from second to third year about an analysis of what their personality types are, what might their specialty interests be. We're also giving them broad exposure. Um, within our curriculum, we have selective times. So our students have an ability to do early career exploration. So they don't have to wait till their third or fourth year to figure out where they might want, uh, what specialty they might want. Want to pursue. How many students show up on day one knowing exactly which direction that they want to go? Is that unusual, Dr. Halliard? Well, there's some that think that they know, and as they <laughs> go through that process, they change. And so we give them a great uh, opportunity to explore all that medicine has to offer. Now, you mentioned how things are changing in medical school, but the Mayo Medical School in itself is changing and growing. It used to just be in Rochester, Minnesota, but explain how that has changed. That's right. We're moving to a national medical school, so we're creating a four-year camp 
campus that's part of Mayo Medical School in Arizona that will open in 2017. We'll have 50 students per year, all MD students for a total of 200 when we're at our full complement. As well, we'll have an option for our Rochester-based students, up to eight students per year who want to complete their last third and fourth year in Florida at Mayo in Florida to do that as well. As well, we have growing opportunities for electives and clerkships in the Mayo Health System. So just as Mayo Clinic has expanded from Mayo Rochester to Arizona, Jacksonville, and the health system, so has Mayo Medical School expanded. And it's an exciting time. It gives our students an opportunity to take advantage of all that Mayo Clinic has to offer enterprise-wide. Have the requirements for getting into medical school changed? Do you still need a, a big science, heavily weighted science background to get into medical school? We see students that are coming from a variety of backgrounds. Certainly you have to have prerequisites that allow you to do well on the MCAT, so certain science prerequisites. But as compared to decades ago when almost everybody had a science major, things have changed. So we have people that have had multiple careers and multiple undergraduate degrees. Dr. Shives, you have said many times, I don't know if you've ever said it on the air, but you've told me you probably wouldn't make it into medical school right now. Nor you, would I. No, <laughs> or me. <laughs> Can one of you explain why that is? Why do you feel that way, Tom? Well, I, I, I think I probably would, but I, I the studying for the MCATs and preparing for the MCATs has completely changed. When I took that examination, it was a test that they really wanted to know what you had learned up to that point in your college career. We didn't study for it. We didn't have all the all the manuals. We didn't have all the courses. And I'm not sure that's that's really been good or helpful. What I would say is that if you really want to make the test better, Based on my experience as a physician over the years, the two things that you really need to test for are integrity, ethics, and common sense. And unfortunately, there's no good test for that. Um, Dr. Reed, you had said there was a couple of other things you wanted to make sure we highlighted, some initiatives at Mayo Medical School. Yes, well, I, I mentioned our, our new training program in the science of healthcare delivery, which is a key initiative. And, and the other is our transformation to blended learning. And blended learning uh, combines online learning with uh, classroom activities. And so instead of uh, sitting in a classroom and, and listening to a traditional PowerPoint lecture, our students are uh, having the opportunity to do short and, and engaging, cutting-edge uh, online modules, uh, perhaps at home, before class, in the coffee shop. They have the opportunity to do that kind of when and where they would like to, um, and then come to the classroom already armed with the core content, and then the classroom activities really build upon that. Uh, so we're not repeating the lecture, but instead doing cases, we're doing laboratory, um, other kinds of interactive activities that take that learning to the next level. Thanks so much for being here, both of you, Dr. Michelle Halyard and Dr. Darcy Reed. Dr. Halyard is Interim Dean of Mayo Medical School. Dr. Darcy Reed is Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at Mayo Medical School. Thanks Thank very you. much. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, the doctor will see you now in your home. In an era of high-tech medicine, some physicians are returning to a practice from bygone days, the house call. And binge eating is a serious medical problem. We'll get details and hear about mindful eating practices that can help you avoid overeating. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You could tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Battling the high cost of cancer drugs. 
a risk for postmenopausal women, and new recommendations for protein in your diet. This is your Mayo Clinic Minute. A group of the nation's leading cancer experts has a prescription on how to reduce the high cost of cancer drugs because it affects patient care. Cancer affects one out of three people, and the price of drugs could wipe out half of some people's income. A University of Pittsburgh study shows many postmenopausal women have lots of fat around their heart, which raises their risk of cardiovascular disease. They say strategies to reduce that risk are key. Plus, researchers say guidelines for how much protein you eat needs updating. They say it's not how much protein you eat, it's the type of protein that's important. And so is eating protein at each meal. Let's talk about the relationship between sleep and being overweight. People who are overweight or obese tend to have sleep problems. In a new study, Mayo Clinic sleep expert Dr. Varen Somers and his team found that people with pot bellies are at risk of having a poor quality of sleep. The type of fat that causes pot bellies is inside the abdomen. It's called visceral fat. Now that they know people with visceral fat tend to have sleep problems, Dr. Summers says the questions become, does the visceral fat cause the sleep issues or does the bad sleep make you fat? He and his team are conducting research to find that out. Itchy eyes and an itchy runny nose, telltale symptoms of seasonal allergies. Some say this year is a bad one for allergy sufferers. Mayo Clinic pediatric allergist Dr. Nancy Ott says pollen counts vary greatly from season to season, and how bad your symptoms are depends on the type of pollen to which you are allergic. Dr. Ott says treatment for seasonal allergies has improved a lot in the last 20 years, and most people can find relief with over-the-counter medications. Use antihistamines for itchy eyes and noses and corticosteroid nasal spray for congestion. If you're miserable, talk to your health care provider. But remember, allergy season will come to an end eventually. For more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shine. And I'm Tracy McRae. Good nutrition, that is getting enough of the right kinds of foods to stay healthy. It's a challenge for all of us, isn't it? Amen. Five fruits and vegetables today. I try as hard as I can. <laughs> Doesn't matter what your age, but you know, for older adults, sometimes because of illness, sometimes because of they don't have an appetite. Good nutrition may be especially difficult. Here to talk about older adults and nutrition is Dr. Paul Takahashi. Dr. Takahashi specializes in general internal medicine and geriatrics at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Takahashi. Thanks, Tracy, Tom. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dr. Takahashi. Always good to have you on the program. So let's talk about nutrition, Mm -hmm. Uh, mainly with regard to older individuals. You deal with them day in and day out. So what do you look for if you that might be a sign or a symptom that uh, there are nutritional issues for that patient? Uh, that's a good question, Tom. And nutrition is really a big topic. So when anybody comes in the office, everybody gets weighed. So I think that's the first thing we look at. And mm-hmm. I talk with people pretty routinely about what am I really uh, focusing on today, and that is to making sure your weight is staying stable. The challenging issue, Tom, is for many, many years, for most of people's lives, we tell people if you lose weight, that's great. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's, that's always a big push and saying, oh, I'm just so happy I'm losing weight. And as a geriatrician, I take care of older adults. That can oftentimes mean a, a sign or a marker for something going very wrong. Such as? Um, it could be um, people starting to have memory loss would be one possibility. An adverse reaction to one of the medications. Uh-huh. Uh, bad illness, uh, heart disease, cancer. 
those types of issues could also be a problem as well. So if somebody recognizes they're losing weight, their clothes are getting more loose, or you have a family member who you think is losing weight, definitely make sure they get them in to see somebody to make to kind of find out what's going on with this weight loss. If I'm to believe uh, what I see in the magazines and on television, all you have to do when you get to be, I don't know, Dr. Shive's age, <laughs> is start drinking some of those supplements that come in bottles, some insure, have my insure every day. What? Where does that fit into this? Um, usually that's kind of the last that's the last step. I mean, you know, Sorry people, about that, Dr. Shives. <laughs> I had to throw you under I'm the bus. I'm on, on the that. last step. <laughs> so it's a... Uh, the, the, the supplements are a great option for people who really have problems with their, their appetite and they just, they just, there's nothing there. They have a lot of problems preparing meals. Oftentimes these are people that maybe have some dementia, memory loss and saying, can you at least make sure mom gets a, a shake in every day? That's about 280, 300 calories. It's pretty good, but you really need to have at least a couple of those a day. My preference is for regular meals. And I think that's, you know, we're, we're designed to eat regular food. Fruits, vegetables, protein in particular is going to be really important. And um, when people stop eating and they lose weight, that's when danger things start to happen. Hmm. People start getting weak. They start losing their balance. They start um, falling, breaking bones. That's a really big challenge. And I, I, when I talk to people about this. That's the number one thing I'm looking for in people who have dementia memory loss is how their weight's doing. So in most doctors' offices, if you uh, go in to see them and you've lost weight, everybody's happy. But in your office, no, no, you not at all. And that's why that's like I'm trying. And I educate people well, every day, there. and they say, and I, you would try to say, well, please don't go on diets, and please be very careful with you know restrictive issues. I know that for some people with major illnesses like heart disease and high blood pressure, you have to be a little cautious with that. But in general, if you're losing weight and we don't have a good reason for that. That, that needs an, needs attention, both to treat it as well as to find out why people are losing weight. Is loss of appetite sometimes related to depression, or it, is it more related to dementia, or both? Or both, both, or medications, one of the, any of the above. Um, or just oftentimes as people get older, their taste buds change, smell changes. People just lose the, you know, the, the, the appetite urge. Uh, but depression is certainly on that list, Tom, and, I, and we routinely ask about that. How, is your, how are your mood, spirits? Are you losing interest in things? Uh, the cognitive loss and memory loss certainly is a big part, too, and we check for those things. So these are things that require a little bit of time to kind of go through and figure out why exactly people are losing that weight. A lot of the enjoyment we get out of eating is because of our sense of smell, right? Absolutely. And, and if you lose that, then things just don't taste you, 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 as good. Exactly, and a lot of neurologic illnesses like Parkinson's disease and dementia, Alzheimer's disease, that's a natural part of people losing their sense of smell. So that's that's kind of, again, another tip that something is going on that we need to look into. You mentioned that uh, as people are coming into the office to see you, and this is how you can keep tabs on them, let's flip it around and talk about our second topic here, which is you going to see them and Ab- house calls. Absolutely. And I think that that's you something... You house calls? We do. This is, a this, new, is, this, this is a new trend. <laughs> no, What's old minute, is now. new again. Not just you guys, right? Well, <laughs> well and, and I think everybody. it's... I think no, increasingly I think it's what, wonderful. It's what, and I think what's going to happen is... Uh, is we're all this, the medical profession is trying to. We're changing. We're going to more of a value-based uh, system. Uh, people are going to see less and less time in the hospital, less and less time in the nursing home, and people will be coming out to your home, uh, particularly after you. If you're hospitalized or you're acutely ill, I think people are going to start to see the old-fashioned house call come back. 
within uh, Olmsted County and Rochester, we're doing that now. We have uh, providers going out, talking to people in their homes or their assisted livings or senior housing and talking with them about how their health is doing. Doing an assessment right on the, right on the spot. And that's awesome because you are then going out and seeing their living space and you Absolutely. can pick up clues. Do they have possible hazards in their homes that might trip them or is the stove piled over with mail so that you know that they're not cooking something or Absolutely. you can pick up lots of keys. Absolutely. And we take a look and see how they're, what they're, what's in the fridge. Sure. Uh, what's, how their medications are doing. If it's just a big pile or if it's very neatly done. And for a lot of people, particularly right after you're sick and in the hospital, it's very difficult to come into a hospital, to come into an office visit. It's very convenient to have someone go out to them and say, hey, let's evaluate you here. Look in your home space. Talk about some other things beyond medicine, community resources, um, what's happening in terms of your caregiving situation, things like that, which don't oftentimes come up in the office, but sometimes a little easier at home to say, boy, you're having... You're having some problem with mm-hmm. this mail, or you're having, mm-hmm. are you, how are you doing with your bills? You need some, you need a senior advocate to help you out. Uh, word has it too that uh, sometimes a pharmacist will actually go out and visit a patient. Absolutely, and uh, that's part of the new change that happened with some of the re- recent regulation changes. That pharmacists are now a part of this, and so mm-hmm. getting a medication review with the pharmacist, making sure they talk with you about whether what you're taking, how you're taking your medications, if there are interactions with your medicines. I think has really been a nice a nice addition to people's care. If and people are listening and thinking, man, that sounds like something I might want to in- investigate a little bit more, how could they find out if a home visit could be part of their medical care? Um, usually you would c- you communicate with your provider and say, well, is this something that, that we provide or when do you provide it? Uh, oftentimes people are in the hospital. That's usually when these things come up and they say, well, I've, you know, I've had a pneumonia, I'm going to be going home, and then don't be surprised if the hospital team says, well, we may have a nurse come to visit with you and two days after you get out to review your medicines to make sure you're getting up and getting around and talking with you how you're doing at home. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Takahashi. Dr. Paul Takahashi specializes in geriatrics and internal medicine at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for the update on nutritional needs of the older individual and also the fact that you make house calls along with your favorite pharmacist. Thanks, Dr. Takahashi. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, binge eating. When does overindulging at the dinner table cross the line and become a serious problem? We'll talk with the psychologist who treats eating disorders. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Who among us hasn't let our emotions get the better of us when it comes to eating too much? I'm thinking about Cheetos. (laughs) (laughs) Doritos. You can't eat just one. All right. You know, maybe it's at a party. We're a little nervous or excited and we dive into those calorie-laden snacks and hors d'oeuvres or... Maybe we're feeling bummed out about something when that quart of ice cream starts calling our name. Again, again, Cheetos. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe we're just tired at the end of a long day and hoping a bag of chips, there you go, Cheetos, will pick us up. I don't even buy them. I can't have them around. (laughs) Yeah, emotions play a major role in our eating habits. And here to talk about paying attention to those emotions before we eat is Dr. Karen Grothy. Dr. Grothy is a psychologist at Mayo Clinic, and she helps people with weight-related health problems. Welcome to the program. I'm Dr. Grothy. Thanks so much. Karen, nice to have you. Thank you. I have a question because I, a long time ago I had a friend who worked, I think she might have been a dietitian, but I think she said if people have over 20 pounds extra, 
that it's more a psychology issue than it is a health issue or a food issue. Would you agree with that? Is that fair to say? Boy, I don't think I would make it as cut and dried as that. I think weight is so multifactorial. You know, for some people, I got put on a medication that stimulated my appetite. Um, other people, I was really active in college. I was an athlete. And after mm-hmm. college, I stopped playing my sport, but I didn't change my eating habits. Mm-hmm. Um, for other people, it is more of an emotional, I comfort myself with food type of thing. But I don't think that's everyone. So I, um, as I said, have a problem with Cheetos. But I don't ever feel like I'm a binge eater. I really don't buy them because I can't I can't trust myself around them. So maybe I would be a binge eater of Cheetos. But I would suspect that's not what we mean when we say binge eating. Well, right? then how come your fingers are yellow? <laughs> Busted. <laughs> Busted. All over my scripts. Um, that's a really great question because we hear that term thrown around a lot, binge. And a lot of people that I meet with who are struggling with weight, I'll ask them, do you think you binge eat? And a lot of them will say, Yes, or I must because I struggle with weight. But technically, a binge is a very large amount of food in a short period of time. And the main feature is really feeling out of control, like they can't stop. They're so, pressured to eat. They're frenzied to eat type of thing. So the emotions have to be part of it? So they don't always have to be. They are most often. Um, but really, so for most people, it is kind of an emotional thing. But then it's paired with... I eat rapidly, I eat until I'm uncomfortably full, I eat when I'm not hungry. There's a percentage of people that binge eat when they skip meals, get really hungry, and then you pair that with the availability of a preferred binge food like Cheetos. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody has disclosures for Cheetos, right? <laughs> um, that that combination of restrained eating pattern plus availability of a preferred will equal a binge even if there aren't emotions to it, but they just feel out of control like they can't stop until that bag is gone. So that's the piece. It's the out of control piece Mm -hmm. is what ties it to a binge, the definition. And really being that amount as well. So some people will say, well, I binged because I had three pieces of pizza. There's actually a psychologist who spent his whole life studying this, and they have defined down to how much pizza, you know, we're talking six donuts. We're talking at least a whole medium to large pizza, depending on where it comes from. That's a binge. Um, you talked about uh, how rapidly we eat, and that, that becomes a problem in that there's this satiety center in your brain, right? And if you if you eat too fast, the signal never gets to your brain that you can stop eating. Is, is that correct? That's exactly right on. It's a pretty inefficient system. So the gut hormones that tell your brain you're full, that whole system takes probably usually a, typically a minimum of 20 minutes. So if we spend less than 20 minutes, we're eating in response to other cues, like how much I was served or what I thought I needed to eat, rather than kind of this internal, okay, that's what I needed for my physiological deficit to feel full. Yeah, who takes 20 minutes to eat anymore? So you've got to eat pretty slow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so what is, is that the solution then, a little bit more mindful be, when you're eating? You know, that can be part of it. So um, people, you know, that restrained eating pattern, changing that around is one of the first steps, whether you have true binges or not. If you have that restrained eating pattern, with which a lot of my patients struggling with weight do, I skip breakfast, maybe I don't have very much for lunch, and all my calories are in the evening. So you're really hungry, and it's harder to control things like that. And so what we try to do is get people to schedule regular eating. And then usually what people do is the first thing they'll say, well, now I'm eating a banana for breakfast. And I'll say, great, because you're eating something. 
but it's not enough. You need to be getting, if you're between 1,200 and 1,800 calories a day, if that's a goal, you probably need 300 calories at breakfast and something with protein and fiber that'll keep you full. Because other people will say, well, I started eating breakfast and now I'm hungry all the time. Well, just that banana or just that light cereal is probably not going to do it. And it means something's working because now your body's hungry. We just need to give it kind of the right system, the right protocol. What do you think of those fad diets that cut out a particular uh, kind of food, like the no-protein diet or the low-carb diet? Or or, the super-protein paleo diet, yeah. What do you think of those? So really, um, there's no evidence that any fad diet works better than any other. And actually, there's evidence that fad diets just get recycled. So the HCG diet right now was popular in the 70s. Didn't work back then, doesn't work now. But um, what what really the truth is, you know, if you look at even Mediterranean diet versus like an Atkins diet or just a low-calorie, low-fat diet like we would say here, as long as it's safe and it's a safe amount of calories, nobody should be under a 1,000 calories unless they're being medically monitored. What predicts weight loss is sticking to the diet. It doesn't matter if it's any of the healthy diets. It's sticking to it. I don't want to put you on the spot. Sorry, but I wonder, what do you think of the Mayo Clinic diet? I like it, and we use it in our weight management program. And um, the pieces I like about that are that it focuses on sustainable changes. There's a lose it portion, but then there's a live it portion. It focuses on whole foods versus foods that come in a box. But it's really kind of the whole package. I'm thinking about something that you said that then what defines it as being binge eating is that you feel out of control. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I've just been thinking, I don't know that I ever feel that way mm-hmm. when I'm eating. I, and I'm sure that there are people who do. And isn't that then what makes it a psychological issue more than a food issue is that that's that out of control feeling. Yeah. And for the people, for the majority of people where emotions play a role, then treating that binge eating or trying to reduce it really becomes about two things. One is regulating your eating pattern so you don't let yourself get too hungry so it's easier to lose control, limiting the availability of your preferred binge foods, but then also treating the depression, anxiety, loneliness, whatever it is that's driving some of that, helping with psychological treatments for those things. Binge eating uh, treatment uh, and diagnosis, is it pretty easy to make this? diagnosis just from history? If you're taking a really good history and you know, again, if you just ask people, do you binge eat? A huge percentage will say if they're struggling with weight, 50 plus percent will say, yes, I do. But in actuality, it's probably more like 20% actually meet criteria for binge eating disorder, which is at least two binges a week for at least three months. And that loss of control and that objectively large amount of food paired with at least several of these other things where I'm eating too quickly or until um, I'm uncomfortably full or in secret. And so the good news is there's good treatments, both medications and psychological. Actually, the behavioral treatments work better than the medications for this one. And um, it is a separate thing from what is being discussed as food addiction and as emotional eating, as you mentioned. A lot of us emotional eat. Some of us have binge eating disorder, like I said, and then a smaller percentage actually may have a true addiction to food. Hmm. Interesting. So if you do have this problem, there is excellent treatment to help you get over it. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Dr. Karen Grothy, psychologist <laughs> and an expert on binge eating. And she's also an expert on dieting and keeping it off. Dr. <laughs> Thank, Karen Grothy. Thanks for being here. Thank thanks, you. Karen. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.